Have you ever felt like everyone, maybe even the whole world, was against you? Well then, today's two unsung heroes are just for you. Now, I know Pastor Kevin has been dealing with one hero a week, but I got just one shot, so I took two of them. But <laughs> not totally the background, but as I was studying the one, the other one came into the picture, and I saw the similarities between them. I'm going to begin with the first unsung hero. Find it in 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 to 10. I'll be reading it from the English Standard Version. Let's hear this word of the Lord. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashebeth, a Tachemanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ohohai. I knew I'd blow that one, Ohohai. He was with David when they defeated the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. But he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. We meet the second unsung hero in 1 Kings, the 22nd chapter. It's a long chapter. I'll be reading just portions of it. And I'll be reading it from the New Living Translation. Starting at verse 1, 1 Kings 22. For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel. Then during the third year, King Jehoshaphat of Judah went to visit King Ahab of Israel. During the visit, the king of Israel said to his officials, Do you realize that the town of Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? And yet we've done nothing to recapture it from the king of Aram. Then he returned to Jehoshaphat and said, Will you join me in battle to recover Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, Why, of course. You and I are as one. My troops are your troops, and my horses are your horses. Then Jehoshaphat added, But first, let's find out what the Lord says. So the king of Israel summoned the prophets, about 400 of them, and asked them, should I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or should I hold back? And they all replied, Yes, go right ahead. The Lord will give the king victory. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not also a prophet of the Lord here? We should ask him the same question. The king of Israel replied to Jehoshaphat, There is one more man who could consult the Lord for us, but I hate him. He never prophesies anything but trouble for me. His name is Micaiah, son of Imla. Jehoshaphat replied, That's not the way a king should talk. Let's hear what he has to say. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Quick, bring Micaiah, son of Imla. King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah, dressed in their royal robes, were sitting on thrones at the threshing floor near the gate of Samaria. All of Ahab's prophets were prophesying there in front of them. One of them, Zedekiah, son of Kenaanah, made some iron horns and proclaimed, This is what the Lord says, With these horns you will gore the Arameans to death. And all the other prophets agreed. Yes, they said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, for the Lord will give the king victory. Meanwhile, the messenger who went to get Micaiah said to him, Look, all the prophets are promising victory for the king. Be sure that you agree with them and promise success. But Micaiah replied, As surely as the Lord lives... I will say only what the Lord tells me to say. Moving down to verse 17. Then Micaiah told him, In a vision I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, 
Their master has been killed. Send them home in peace. Didn't I tell you, the king of Israel exclaimed to Jehoshaphat, he never prophesies anything but trouble for me. Down to verse 23. Micaiah said, So you see, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all your prophets, for the Lord has pronounced your doom. Then Zedekiah, son of Kenyana, walked up to Micaiah and slapped him across the face. Since when did the spirit of the Lord leave me to speak to you? He demanded. Micaiah replied, You will find out soon enough when you are trying to hide in some secret room. Arrest him, the king of Israel ordered. Take him back to Amon, the governor of the city, and to my son Joash. Give them this order from the king. Put this man in prison and feed him nothing but bread and water until I return safely from battle. But Micaiah replied, If you return safely, it will mean the Lord has not spoken through me. And then he added to those standing around, Everyone, mark my words. Down to verse 34. Later in the battle, an Aramean soldier, however, randomly shot an arrow at the Israelite troops, and it hit the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. Turn the horses and get me out of here, Ahab groaned to the driver of his chariot. I'm badly wounded. The battle raged all that day, and the king remained propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans, and the blood from his wound ran down to the floor of his chariot, and as evening arrived, he died. Just as the sun was setting, the cry ran through his troops, We're done for! Run for your lives! Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these two men of yours, about whom we know so very little. But now through your Spirit, may we learn much. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. I love action scenes. That should be obvious by now. And today we have two of them. Scene one. Meet Eleazar, the son of Dodo. <laughs> How'd you love to be growing up with the last name of Dodo? David and his men were engaged in a battle. And apparently, most of those in battle decided to retreat. But not Eleazar. He was a man who knew himself and he knew his God. And he didn't want to forsake the way by running with them. And so we read, he picked up his sword and he arose and smote the Philistines. And it says he fought, and literally it says, until the sword was welded to his hand. This lone man, this, this one man, made up for all of the fleeing countrymen. And we read, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and then returned after him only to strip the slain. The job was done, the battle was over. And that's all we ever hear about Eleazar. Talk about unsung. Scene two, meet Micaiah. Now we need to understand the context here. Ahab was the king of northern Israel, probably the worst king they had ever had. Jehoshaphat, meanwhile, ruled southern Israel, and he was probably the best king they'd ever had. So it's sort of an odd couple, but they've been brought together because of a marriage in their family, and now they were kinfolk. So once in a while, they would get together, and on this occasion, Ahab asked for help in regaining some territory they had lost, and Jehoshaphat agreed. But he said, let's hear first from the prophets. Now we need also to understand their view of the prophets. They were both different and both wrong. Both kings had flawed view of 
prophecy. Ahab thought that the prophets were agents of, of magic, who with the use of dramatic symbolism could, could give moral support to the king's already made decision and also believed that somehow that magic could somehow influence God, perhaps by an auto-suggestion. On the other hand, Jehoshaphat believed firmly that prophets were agents of divine revelation, but he erred because he was mistaken in that he thought the primary job of a prophet was to affirm decisions already made and that prophetic warnings could be ignored without any danger. So what a scene this is. The two of them looking to prophets about whom they knew untruth. And it is a dramatic scene. It says the two kings are in a wide open area by one of the gates. It's a threshing floor. 400 prophets are there. The two kings are in all their royal robes, all their regalia, sitting on the thrones. And then there's a Zedekiah, who in order to do this symbolism, put on a head with two horns and said, indeed, you're going to gore the enemy. And the 400 prophets all said, yes! And then came Micaiah. All he said was Ahab would die. And he was slapped in the face. And he was ridiculed. And he then boldly proclaimed that a lying spirit had been put into the mouths of the 400 prophets in Zedekiah. And for that, he was imprisoned. And yet, as we read, it all came true when a stray arrow hit Ahab and he was shot and killed in the battle. And apart from what is related here That's all we know about Micaiah. Unsung, but a hero. But these two unsung heroes bring us at least three truths. The first is that wherever God's people are, there's a movement. It's an anti-God movement. It's a war against God. We're in the midst of just such a war in our world today. And at the core of the war, there is an anti-religious army. And the soldiers in this battle want to put away or destroy all religious people, regardless of particular religion, but in recent years, particularly those of the Christian religion, before they, quote, do any more damage. Now, this has been years in the making. And one of the key tenets was a very strict scientific mindset. A mindset which believes that science is king and it is the only source of all knowledge and truth and reality. Now those who believe this say that yes, religion once had a role, but no longer. Religion may have been okay at one time, but since science has developed, there's no longer any need for religion since it really explains nothing and cannot be verified. And rationally, it's just not possible to believe in God. They go so far as to say, if you believe in God, you are blind, ignorant, and simply uneducated. You're just not a rational person. This attitude has significant threat to our youth because it's tenaciously held and vigorously taught by our nation's intellectual, educational, and media elite. It's been fostered by several people in particular. One is Richard Dawkins, who wrote what became a very popular bestseller, The God Delusion. Now, he was a naturalist. That means he said there was nothing beyond the natural, physical world. 
There is no super creative intelligence that is behind all the observable universe. There's no, no soul that outlasts the body. There are no miracles except in the sense of there are some things we don't yet understand, but when we do, it'll no longer be miracle. In his own words, quote, religion is a virus of the mind. He said it comes from something mechanical or chemical in the brain. And he says we've outgrown our need for faith in God. So anyone who passes on any, any religious means is committing child abuse. Similarly, Samuel Harris postulated that our mental and spiritual lives are wholly dependent on the working of our brains. And while religious people aren't generally mad, he said their core beliefs are absolutely suggestive of mental illness. Went on to say that people who harbor strong convictions without evidence of scientific support belong to the margins of society and not in the halls of power. Still another elite voice of influence was that of Christopher Hutchins. Among other things, he said, religion is man-made. The God of the Bible is evil and ogre, and it poisons everything. Thanks to the telescope and microscope, religion no longer offers any explanation of anything important. Those who lie to young people about creation, about hell, about fornication and adultery are wicked in the extreme. And this has all been thrust upon not only adults, but our children for years. But there's another part of this anti-God movement that is formed to try to counteract all of this that has been being spewed out. It's what I call a synthesized religion. Now, it's one thing to say there's freedom of religion. It's another to say the religions all have something in common together, and that's good enough. This mindset tries to accommodate beliefs from, from all sorts of religions with disastrous results. A few years ago, there was a poll that showed 44% of Americans thought the Bible, the Koran, and the Book of Mormon are all just different expressions of the same spiritual truths. And more recently, the renowned Christian pollster George Barna says that only 8%, only 6%, of Americans adhere to a strict biblical worldview. And 88% borrow from multiple and sometimes contradictory worldviews in order to form their belief systems. This and this may contradict, but it's okay. It's all truth to me. The result is there is no core truth. There is no comprehensive worldview. Knowledge is subjective. There is no single truth or truth giver. There are no absolutes. Religion, therefore, is a matter of choice. It's like a cafeteria. This one is right for me, and this one is right for me, and they may be opposite, but they're right for me. And what's right for you is right for you. Truth is what gives meaning to me. But the result of that is there is an increasing religious intolerance for anyone who claims to hold or express absolute truth. But let's not forget, all of this had been predicted. Isaiah, the 59th chapter, starting at verse 12. For our sins are piled up before God and testify against us. Yes, we know what sinners we are. We know we have rebelled and have denied the Lord. We've turned our backs on God. We know how unfair and oppressive we have been, carefully planning our deceitful lies. Our courts oppose the righteous, and justice is nowhere to be found. 
Truth stumbles in the streets and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. And it's easy to say, well, that's, that's the Old Testament. So we turn to Paul who wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. My friends, this is the time in which we live. Dr. Henry Mao said to Reformed Church General Synod just a few years ago, when a church changes their values to match current culture, they're no longer following the Bible. They're following the lost. So if if you remember nothing else this morning, remember this. We are living in enemy-occupied territory. Ephesians 6.12 We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. And wherever the seeds of Christ's kingdom are sown, there will be opposition. Whenever deeper, firmer commitments are made, Satan will go to war. Whenever you, whenever I, whenever a congregation tries to deepen their service or find new avenues of ministry, you will see signs of Satan's increased activity because he will not be happy and he will increase his efforts to defeat us. We're kind of like a soccer goalie, I once saw a picture of a soccer goalie standing in the goal and he had on a jersey with a target on and a bullseye right in the middle of his chest. It was his way of saying, go ahead, take your shot. I got this. We are kind of the ones with the targets on our chest saying to Satan, go ahead, bring it on. And make no mistake about it, he will. Years ago, Martin Luther was correct when he wrote, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. As I have been working on this sermon, it's amazing how many news stories have come out affirming what I have said. And I've chosen the last minute to just include one of them to bring home the point that this is real. It was either last Sunday or the Sunday before, Dr. John MacArthur, some of you may be aware of him, in California was preaching on human sexuality. He made this statement, there's no such thing as transgender, you're either XX or XY and that's it. God made man male and female. That is determined genetically, that is physiology, it is science, it is reality. His services are recorded and put on YouTube. YouTube heard that, and they took it away, claiming it was hate speech. The battle is real. You're probably sitting there thinking, boy, I didn't come to have this be a bummer of a morning. Well, there's good news. The good news that in the midst of this movement, God has given us a message. His message is... His Word, it's the Word of God. It's the Bible and it's the Word, Jesus Christ. That's our message to the world. It is the truth. It's our weapon for the battle. 
And this word has power to bring light into darkness, to overcome evil with good, to overcome falsehood with truth. For his word has unstoppable, incredible power. Just three passages which demonstrate it. Romans 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The word of God has the power to bring salvation. Why is it that some people get so uptight when you want to quote the scriptures? Because it's like a surgeon's knife. And it goes right after cutting away that which is not good, and cutting hurts. That's what Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And the third passage reminds us that God's word never fails to cut and heal. Isaiah 55. As the rain and snow come down from heaven. (laughs) Appropriate day for that, isn't it? As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Our message, that word, is power, truth, and authority. You'll hear more about that in in a few weeks. That's all I'm going to say about the message. It's self-explanatory. But to combat this movement, we need the message, and that means we are currently in a moment. It's a moment for us to decide. It's our turn to take up the sword, to speak the truth, We are here for such a time as this. Just listen to some biblical admonitions from the New Testament. Hebrews 2.1 We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so we do not drift away. Titus 1.9 He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. 2 Corinthians 10 Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. A little letter of Jude, verses 3 and 4. I feel compelled to make my letter to you an earnest appeal to put up a real fight for the faith which has been once and for all committed to those who belong to Christ. For there are men who have surreptitiously entered the church but who have for a long time been heading straight for the condemnation I shall plainly give them. They have no real reverence for God. They abuse His grace as an opportunity for immorality. They will not recognize the only Master, Jesus Christ our Lord. Erwin Lutzer, longtime pastor of Moody Bible Church, has written a powerful book, We Will Not Be Silenced. And he said this is part of his purpose for writing it, and I quote, I want to inspire us to have the courage to walk toward the fire and not run away from the flames. God has brought us to this cultural moment and our future cannot be taken for granted. As has been said, in a time of universal deception, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. 
it's time for us to be revolutionary. When a United States congressman can proclaim during a full congressional session, quote, what any religious tradition describes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. We must be revolutionary, and we must boldly, lovingly, but boldly, counter that falsehood with God's truth. Romans 1, verses 18 to 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. We must recover the calling to preach and teach and speak the word, in season and out of season, to any and all who seek to fight against us. We need to testify to and preach Jesus, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the consequences, no matter what the cost. We do it when it's easy and when it's hard. We do it when it's well-received. We do it when it's rejected. We do it when we're loved for it, and we do it when we're hated for it. And just a little aside here. I made a little reference to it earlier. We have a special obligation to our youth. Moms and dads, and grandmas and grandpas, think about your children and your grandchildren. I think of my grandchildren, Keely, Skyler, Grayson, Megan, Bethany, Micah, Elise, and Annika, and as a yet unnamed, soon great-grandchild to be born. And when I think about them, I recognize they need to know about Scripture and its authority. They need to know about creation and their purpose for living. They need to know about eternity, about sin and salvation, about Jesus as the only way to salvation. Because they need a worldview that explains their origins, that makes sense of marriage, that clarifies the the beauty and the proper role of our sexual natures and gives them the underpinnings of viewing all of life as sacred. And who will speak that into their lives? Who will plant their roots? It begins with us, moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas. Adolf Hitler believed he alone who owns the youth gains the future. And he proved it to be true. And there are those working to prove it true today. Listen, those who control the story control the culture. And the truth is, we have the grand story. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's time to save our children's generation. It's a great old hymn, which for some reason we never sang very much, but it's called Once to Every Man and Nation. It includes these verses. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, some great decision offering each the bloom or blight and the choice goes by forever twixt that darkness and the light. 
This is our moment to decide. When it came to defending the Lord's territory, Eliezer didn't waste time criticizing those who had run. He didn't waste time going, trying to bring them back. He just picked up the sword and he hewed and hacked away with all his might. And he held onto the sword until it was welded to his hand. And Micaiah was not undone by a slap in the face. He was not undone by a prison cell. And come to think about it, Jesus was not undone by a cross. Will we grasp our swords, stand our ground, regain his territory, and experience the Lord's victory? Will we be a people with tired, frozen hands, slapped cheeks, and cross scars who speak the truth no matter what? We can be because God has said he will help us. Second Chronicles 16.9 The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. The commanding guard said, Take her furniture, search her house for Bibles. All the while, tears filled Mrs. Liu Ying's eyes as she watched four communist guards ransack her home. I found it, said one of the guards, and as he held it out to give to his commanding officer, Mrs. Liu Ying bravely grabbed it back from him, and she said, This book contains all I need to know about my dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and I do not want to part with it. She said it as she held her Bible close to her chest. Take her outside, yelled the commanding officer. We'll see how long she wants to hold to her book about Jesus. Four commanding officers took her into the street. They mocked her. They spat on her. They beat her till she could no longer stand. Do you still believe your book of myths? They mocked. And she repeated her statement of faith. The guards then grabbed an iron bar and smashed her hands, forcing her to lose her grip. The Bible fell to the street and it was confiscated. Nearly 20 years later, a missionary courier delivered her another Bible. Her eyes filled with tears. She clutched it with her now deformed hands, put it by her chest and said, This time, I'm not letting go. Remember the words of Paul. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Here's the take home. The battle has already been won. Jesus won the battle on the cross. Satan has been defeated. He's been declawed. He can bother us. He can fight us. He can threaten us. But he cannot beat us. So when the world says, stand down, we'll stand up. When the world says, shut up, we'll speak up. When the world says, there's no place for you, we'll make a place. When the world says, you'll pay a price, we'll say, the price has already been paid. When the world says you'll be persecuted, we'll say, bring it on, we're ready, I can take it. When the world says you will lose, we'll say, the battle's already been won. And just with Eliezer and Micaiah, 
We can share in the victory of our Lord. It won't be easy. It will be hard. It may not win us a lot of friends. In fact, we may be hated for it. We may be persecuted for it. And remember, Jesus is the one who said, it's not you they hate, it's me. Peter caught it. He wrote, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And Jesus himself said, happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. saw this shirt. We all ought to wear it. Here's what it says. It's a stance we need to take. I would rather stand with God and be judged by the world than to stand with the world and be judged by God. And we can do it. God promised through Isaiah, you're my servant serving on my side. I've picked you. I haven't dropped you. Don't panic. I'm with you. There's no need to fear for I'm your God. I'll give you strength. I'll help you. I'll hold you steady. Keep a firm grip on you. Here's what to take home with you. Got this from Dr. Ben Carson who suggested it would be a great personal resume for each of us. Church is my college. Heaven is my university. Father God is my counselor. Jesus is my principal. Holy Spirit is my teacher. Angels are my classmates. Bible is my textbook. Temptations are my exams. Overcoming Satan is my hobby. Winning souls for God is my assignment. Receiving eternity is my degree. Praise and worship are my slogan. What do you say we go out and live out our resumes? Let's pray. Lord God, this is a world you created, but this is not the world you made. Convict us. Help us learn from these two unsung heroes what it means to remain faithful. The battle's not ours, it belongs to you. So take that two-edged sword of your word and do your surgery on us so that we, Lord, become your army never afraid to stand and speak for you. We ask it in the name, the all-powerful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand and respond to